Okay, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. It's so good to be back. It feels, it's always one of those things where when the, whenever there's a break, to me at least, it feels like an absolute eternity. And it's really good to be able to come back to, to learn together. And I, uh, you know, a lot's gonna happen. And this, this segment has eight weeks, although only seven of them, of those eight, are the, are what we're doing here for this course. We're gonna be doing Proverbs, Job, and then the five Migilot. And two weeks from tonight, we're having a book, a double book reception. I managed to, published two books since the last time we've come out. I mean, they were written before. I didn't write them in the last few weeks. <laughs> they were, you know, one was written a couple years ago. One was written last year. But thank God they all came out right at, right at the same time. So I don't see any point in having two different book receptions. We're just going to have one big party together in two weeks. I'll give a presentation. We'll have the books right here. Same time. I specifically wanted it in our time slot because I feel... This is really this is this is the predominant learning that I do here with the KJ community. This is really the group that you know I want I want to be associated with this group. As as, as many of you know, we're going to be moving to Teaneck come May, and so you now know this. So me and my family for that matter. Yes, and so I thank all of you. I don't have to waste time. Sure, we'll talk about it. But in the meantime, we're, go- we're moving to Teaneck. I thank all of you for your good wishes in all of that. But I specifically told the rabbis when, when I was letting them know this that I wanted my last minute on the job to be 8 p.m. on May 17th. I want the last thing that I do as part of the KJ staff to, to be to be this class, and then we'll finish Chronicles. We're going to be done with the course, and then May 18th, I think we're going to move, and, and that's what's and that's what's going to happen. Yes, it's, it's, it, believe me, I think it's even crazier than you think it is. But, in, but, but, but that all being said, we're, we're excited about the new stage in our journey. But simultaneously, I'm obviously going to miss it here very, very, very much. And, but, but we have a lot to do between now and then. So this is not the goodbye thing. We'll have a goodbye, we'll have a goodbye on May 17th. Proverbs. Proverbs is the hardest book for me to teach. So I'll just start that way. So I, I used to love it. It was, a, it was a terrific book. When I was 18, 19 years old, I was bonkers about this book. It was really, it was something that I loved learning in yeshiva. I sat down with various students and we'd all just talk about it together. 20 years old, I was still very excited about it. And when I came to Yeshiva University, first text course that I registered for was Proverbs in, in, in the Bible department. I couldn't wait to take it. And I took it, and the teacher taught it very, very, very well. I don't want any of this to sound like I'm criticizing the teacher, because I'm not. He did a great job. His strategy was, since if you read the book, you'll notice it's kind of disjointed. It's a whole confederation of Proverbs. That's the title suggests. So what he did is he arranged them into themes. Here's a whole bunch of verses about friendship. Here's a bunch of verses about love. Here's a bunch about divine judgment, and so on. Very smart way to teach the book. But I found myself not that engaged. Because most of the lessons that he was teaching are lessons that, you know, by the time you're 20, 21 years old, you might think you know more than you do. But here it actually seemed pretty basic. And so I was left kind of high and dry. I felt, there's got to be something more you could do with this. Oh, so I got to graduate school in Bible. Lo and behold, Proverbs appears on the roster. Another excellent teacher. I'm going to take that one too. And his method was to deal with History of, of interpretation of how you link this verse to that verse. Not one, not two specific verses, but just in general, approaches to connecting the verses. He did a fabulous job. He taught it so well. We went through a couple of chapters. We did our methodology. And I found at the end I was even less engaged. I'm like, something's wrong here. It's a book that I love. I have two great teachers doing a great job. And I can't... I can't do it. So, and, and, and through 43 semesters at Yeshiva University, I've never taught this book. It's the first time that we've gotten to the point in our course 
or I could say that all the other all the other shiurim, I have to take entire courses and boil them into one or two shiurim. That is crazy hard to do, but that's what you do. Here, I've never taught the course, so it was easier in a sense. I simply went through all the literature that I can get my hands on and tried to figure out what do you do when you have one one lecture to do instead of trying to boil a course into all of that. And I have no intentions of ever teaching it because I haven't thought of a better way to do it than those two teachers. If I ever come up with one, I'll change my mind and, and go ahead and do it. But I've never taught the book of Proverbs. And uh, I asked many students of mine and other teachers who teach it, okay, what do you do? Tell me your secret because I would love to add a new course. That would be so awesome. And they all give me the same answer. We teach it on a deeper level. All right, so I'm used to this answer by now, so I know what that means. So I say, so I ask them, when you say teach it on a deeper level, do you mean you actually teach it on a deeper level, or do you just pick a couple of commentators and go through what they have to say? So they say, yeah, of course, the latter. I'm like, there's nothing strange about teaching a text course where the text doesn't matter. I find that very frustrating. And that's why I won't teach it as a text course. Okay, if you want to teach interpretations of Proverbs, there's a lot of amazing insights. But I feel that those are the insights of the rabbis writing the commentaries, not the book. And that's just weird. Like, how could it be that you have a biblical book that is just so different? So tonight, we're going to go through what the book is about, why why it's still really excellent. And then, and then at, at kind of at the end, wind down to what I think the book of Proverbs is really doing and why I loved it when I was 18 and why it's hard for me to teach now. And then that'll propel us into Job, which I couldn't have done when I was 18. But boy, oh boy, I can't wait till next week to really go crazy with that one. So the book of Proverbs, which is traditionally ascribed to King Solomon, the first verse of the book says so is a book that you will find in the Ketuvim, which doesn't claim to be prophetic. Tradition says that it, like all the other biblical books, is written with some form of divine inspiration. But there's nothing in the book that claims prophetic revelation. It's not that it says, God spoke to me saying this wisdom. The whole format of the book, the first nine chapters, are just a father talking to his child, saying how good it is for you to be wise. It's good advice Here's the wise father, here's our received tradition, here's our wisdom, and now we're going to pass that wisdom on to you. Make the right choices. There are always bad choices lurking in the distance. Don't make those bad ones. They're terrible. And boy, do they lead to terrible consequences. You need to make the right choices. That's what it's all about. Another thing that this book is not about is anything to do with the Torah or Israel. It's not about our national history and our relationship with God. It's about individuals. It's about how righteous, well, all people should be righteous individuals, and it has nothing to do with Jews. All people should be God-fearing people. For Jews, that means through the Torah. For non-Jews, that means what we call the seven Noahide laws and a religious relationship with God. But all the same, that's what it's addressed to. This is what we would think of as universal wisdom. There are a few books in the Tanakh that are like that, that are universal. The book of Job is heavily like that. It has nothing to do with Jews, Judaism, anything. It is not about us as a people. It's about how God-fearing people relate to God, which is a very important agenda of Tanakh. So that's basically what this book is about. It is the wisdom of one wise man talking initially to his child and eventually to just all of us. It's, it's, that, that, that's how the book is presented, and that's what it is. King Solomon himself, the wisest of all men, is already known in source number one for composing Proverbs. He composed 3,000 Proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. I like that round number, 1,005. But in the meantime, over on the 3,000 Proverbs, even assuming that that is a rough estimate, our entire book that we call the book of Proverbs is 915 verses. 
Verses? Verses. Not chapters. Definitely not chapters. 31 chapters, 915 verses. So whatever these 3,000 Proverbs were, we don't have all of them. Assuming one proverb per verse, even though that's not always true, but let's just assume that to keep it simple. He obviously composed many, many, many Proverbs, and some of them seem to have made it into our book. And the book is actually divided into collections. You actually hear an editorial hand much more than in other biblical books. And it's really cool what you get to hear. So now we get to see what, what, we, what we see. If you look at source two, it's just the first verse of the book. Chapter one, verse one. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So that's how the book starts, which is why it's traditionally ascribed to Solomon. It says so. That makes it easy. The first nine chapters, as I mentioned, are a coherent admonition or whatever you want to call it, teaching of a father to his son, explaining, dear son, do the right thing. Avoid the bad choices. Make all the good choices. It's always the right thing to do. And then chapter 10 rolls in, source three, the Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son brings joy to his father, a dull son, his mother's sorrow, dot, 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 many, many, many other Proverbs and so on. So what do you mean the Proverbs of Solomon? Just we knew that already now. Like, nothing has changed. Why do you put that in again? What is the editor signaling to us? Even though we are, if he didn't put that verse there, we'd say, okay, it's still the Proverbs of Solomon. So what do you gain from this introductory verse? Well, it's reinforcing the fact that he was the one who provided these. That it wasn't someone else that, you know, we shouldn't assume anything. He makes it clear, this is the guy. Okay, good. You could argue that an author needs to jump in every now and then just to remind remind us of who he is. But like Isaiah, you don't keep on having the prophecy of Isaiah. Once the beginning of the book says it, we assume it's him until somebody else shows up and says, now we're up to the words of Jeremiah. Okay. That works out very nicely. You don't normally have authors jumping in periodically through the book. What it seems to be signaling is that, dear reader, here is also King Solomon's work, but it is a new collection. We have a different collection of Proverbs coming down the pike. And beginning chapter 10, we have that loose confederation of Proverbs that I was mentioning to you, that my graduate course in Proverbs, that's what it was all about. We skipped the first nine chapters, and we just got right to the stuff that it's not at all clear what verse 3 has to do with verse 4. A scholar, his name is Frank Talmadge, he was a great expert in Radak, Rabbi David Kimchi. So he, he once quipped, he said that it's often quipped, I don't know if, Maybe people back then were bandying it around back in the 1970s. I've never heard it other than from him in in one of his books. He says that when you read Psalms, it's very difficult to understand why Psalm 86 is next to Psalm 87 or whatever it is. You can't always know why two Psalms are juxtaposed. In Proverbs, you can't always tell why two verses are juxtaposed. In Job, you can't always tell why two words are juxtaposed. So that's his quip. There's just different layers of three tough books, and it's not always clear what the connections are with all of them. Many of our commentators struggle very mightily to understand the link between various verses. They struggled mightily indeed. It's very hard to figure out what it is. But what we can tell you is that beginning chapter 10, we have another collection of Solomon's Proverbs. And this time it's actually really Proverbs. They really are individual, pithy sayings, that, you know, stitch in time saves nine type of things. Really, a lot of it sounds just like that. And we'll get back to that point shortly. And then you keep right on rolling through the book until you get to chapter 25 and source four over here. These two are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of King Hezekiah of Judah copied. 
So here we have an editorial note that we have yet another collection of King Solomon over here. But this time we have additional information. King Hezekiah, Chizkiah of Judah, we talked about him back in the day in the book of Kings, in the book of Isaiah, superhero king, one of the best ever. Hezekiah lived, I don't know, two, three hundred years after Solomon. So here from this editorial note, you pick up that our book is telling us that there was an editorial process. King Hezekiah and this school, whoever these people are, did something that changed what the book was prior. Whatever book there was pre-Hezekiah, now there's more to it. Our options are, it all was oral, orally transmitted, and they're the ones who are committing it to writing. It could be that there were some things committed to writing already, and now they have other traditions that they're adding on. I don't know. But what we do see is that we have yet another collection over here, and this time we have a later hand explicitly mentioned in the book. In fact, that later hand caught the sage's imagination in the Talmud. And they conclude from that one lone verse that we just saw, if you look at source 5, Hezekiah and his colleagues wrote Isaiah, which has nothing to do with our talk, but Proverbs, the Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes. If you ask the sages, who was the author of Proverbs, Song of Songs, and Ecclesiastes, what would they tell you? Don't look at the source we just read. King Solomon. These are the three King Solomon books. right? Song of Songs, Proverbs that we're doing right now, and Ecclesiastes. They all are identified explicitly in the text. In the case of Song and Songs and Proverbs with Solomon, and in the case of Ecclesiastes, he has a nickname, Kohelet, but it's Kohelet who's the son of David, king of Jerusalem. So there aren't any other candidates who fit that bill besides Solomon. David had no other sons who reigned. There are other verses that are even more explicit about that point. So I would have just thought, reading the biblical evidence, King Solomon is the traditional author of these books. But this one editorial comment that Hezekiah and his men had something to do with Proverbs was enough to trigger the sages to say they must have had a hand in all of Solomon's works. It's really cool how that one verse could just open it up for the sages like that. So they assume that Hezekiah and his colleagues, again, when it says wrote, that could either mean edited, committed to writing, had some input over there. There are different things that the word wrote in this passage could mean. But that's certainly, that's certainly within the realm of fair game. So Hezekiah gets credit for being involved in the Solomonic pro- project. You get the sense that it's an ongoing, what we would call today, a Beit Midrash. Rather than just one supreme author, King Solomon, these proverbs were discussed and transmitted and memorized in ancient Israel. And Hezekiah and his school pick it up and develop it, edit it, order it, whatever else they're doing. There's a whole process that's going on that we actually get to see more explicitly than we generally do in biblical books. Yeah. What did Ezra, the Rosh Hashanah, in the line, you know, it's in parentheses. What does that say? What does it mean? Yeshayahu, Mishlei, Shir, and Kohelet. It's simply an acronym referring to the four books that you have. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Then you jump all the way down to chapter 30, which is source 6, and suddenly you get something very curious indeed. The words of Agur, son of Yake, man of Massah, the speech of the man to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal. Well, in the world, and then there are more proverbs over there in chapter 30. So what's this? So here you have tradition has two ways of thinking about this situation. Part of tradition cannot believe that there's any other voice in our book besides King Solomon. So Agur must be a nickname for him. Already in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation, they just got rid of these other players, and it all becomes King Solomon once and for all. 
That's how they deal with it. And several later commentators as well assume that Agur is just a nickname somehow for Solomon. And if you just jump down to source 7, one chapter later, the last chapter of the book, the words of Lemuel, king of Massa, with which his mother admonished him. Well, here we have another guy, Lemuel. Right? So all of a sudden here, with the last two chapters of our book, we get two totally different names. This isn't Solomon anymore. Right? So either these are nicknames somehow of King Solomon, or what many commentators think, no, here are other wise men that made it. Right? That here are Lemuel and, uh, and, and Agur, and these are simply other people, other wise people, and they wrote Proverbs that also merit inclusion into the biblical book of Proverbs by the final editing team. Chronology. I don't know who these people are, so I can't tell you when oh, they live. Oh, you have to relate to the order of the individuals. I have no idea who they are. There's one interesting commentator from the 16th century Algeria. His name is Rav Avraham Gavishon. And in 16th century Algeria, he said, not only are these not Solomon, but they're not even Jewish. These two people were non-Jewish sages who were students. He posits that they were students of King Solomon. He's just making all of this up. There's nothing in the text that suggests one way or the other. But it's a suggestion. Everything is, we, we don't know who these people are, so we can't identify them in any meaningful way. He thinks that these were non-Jewish people who came to hear Solomon's wisdom, because he was the world-famous wise man, so everybody wanted to hear. So these were sages of other communities. And by the way, he also mentions Etl and Uchal in Source 6. There are, different, there are different people over here who are mentioned. He said these were all non-Jews. And King Solomon taught, since King Solomon was the wisest of all men, he even knew French, and he knew other languages too. And so he taught these individuals in their language, and they went off and taught Solomon's wisdom. So his assumption is that the verses that we get here are originally from Solomon, that were then transmitted by these non-Israelite sages, and that the men of Chizkiah translated these proverbs back into Hebrew for the book. Cool theory. I, I like this kind of stuff. It, it was worth reading, you know, some of uh, Gavishon's comments just for just for this point alo- alone. There are some scholars who suggest that there are subsections in various things, but I don't find any of them very convincing at all. So let's assume that these are the real breaks of the book that the editors wanted us to hear. So how many collections of proverbs are there in our book? If you just take all the headings, each one reflecting a new collection. We have from chapters 1 through 9, that's section 1. Then you have 10 to 24, and that's section 2. All right, then you have 25 through 29, that's section 3. Then you have chapter 30 is section 4, and you have chapter 31 is section 5. There are five collections, not at all of equal length. All right, the last couple of chapters are one chapter each, and they're not unusually long chapters. If this is deliberate then boy, oh boy, do we have a cool thing going for us over here. Ride with this, folks. Here we go. The Torah, we talked about this already in Psalms, and now we could really go for it. The Torah is five books, even though we call it the Torah. But we all know there's five books in there. And those are the five books that are directly from God to people. They're the most direct from God to people thing in the history of the world. Okay? Then you have Psalms, which we talked about feels like forever ago, but the last time we met, basically, there are five collections of psalms that comprise the book of psalms. And that also seems to be a deliberate way of saying, here are five books that are from people to God. It's exactly the opposite of the Torah, the opposite direction. Well, if Proverbs was built around five sections, and that was deliberate, 
I don't know if it is, but if it is, then here you have five books of one wise sage communicating traditional wisdom to people. Right, it's from person to people here. God is not, in, it's not a revelatory thing, and it's not prayer. It's simply wisdom. It's a wise man revealing wisdom or transmitting wisdom to the next generations. So it would be very, very, very amazing if, if this were deliberate, if there was an intentional goal to have five sections so that you can convey the sense of, now we have three books in sacred scripture, three books in our Bible, one in the Torah, one in Psalms, and one Proverbs, each one conveying a different medium of what religious life is all about. God speaking to us, us speaking to God, and then wise people teaching other people, being able to transmit that wisdom. So now let's go back to Rabbi Gavishon's comment. What's interesting when you read through the book of of Proverbs is that for the most part, if God's name isn't in it, it really sounds like anybody could have said these things. It's wise. They're, They're fine Proverbs. We should all live by them and always make the right decisions. But a lot of them, it really sounds like a stitch in time saves nine. They're good, pithy sayings that are true, worthy. It's good to be a good friend. It's good to have good friends. I know that. You know that. We all appreciate our friends, and we all appreciate trying to be good friends, right? But you don't need an Israelite sage to say this kind of thing. You can imagine that a Mesopotamian sage could have said the same thing, or an Egyptian sage could have said the same thing. Even a talk show host, anybody, anybody can come along with this kind of material and be able to say it. And it's important to note, this is one thing that contemporary scholarship has contributed, we now have wisdom literatures of other people. There were wise people in other countries doing this kind of thing as well. They had wisdom circles, they had sages, they would sit around and philosophize and talk about wisdom and give practical guidance. It's hardly surprising, but we now have the texts. And a lot of it is very similar sounding. And understandably, when you have universal wisdom, that makes sense. What makes Proverbs different is how it uses this classical material. So, for example, one thing that the book of Proverbs likes to do is make these nice little pairs of verses. If you look at source 8, here's a good example of that. Over in chapter 15, you have better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with confusion. Okay, that clearly is an Israelite proverb. The fear of the Lord is something which is central to the book of Proverbs. And so that's the kind of verse that you're going to find here and not necessarily in Egypt or Mesopotamia. And then the very next verse... Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened ox where there is hate. Anybody could have said that one, right? In other words, this is just the basic premise that as horrible as vegetarian food obviously is and as wonderful as excellent meat can be, which we all know to be true, I like vegetarian food too, to be perfectly honest, but yeah, the fattened ox is sounding really, really good right now. But in the meantime, that all being said, we all agree, or at least the point of the proverb is, yes, but you need shalom bayit. You need to have peace around the table, and that's more important than the menu. Okay, excellent wisdom. But when you pair these two verses together, you realize it's the same form, right? It's better this than that. So the first one is an Israelite-specific one, better fear of Lord than confusion, or better to be poor and God-fearing than to be wealthy and all messed up. And likewise, it's better to have a meal of vegetables, the assumption is, once again, that's poor, that's poor man's food, when, where there is love, than a fattened ox where there is hate. So that's a great example of an Israelite-specific proverb juxtaposed to a universal proverb that anybody could have done. Yeah, Elias? If you compare Pirkei Ovos and Kohelas and Mishlo, 
Agreed, and and you're speaking the same way. I, I think I think that my frustration with the Book of Proverbs—it's not a frustration; it's the wrong word. But the reason why it's difficult for me to teach it is your point. I feel that just to teach this material, it's good; it's all true. I don't think anybody's going to disagree or pick a serious fight with most of the proverbs. But it, but it, but but I think what most of us are grabbed by is the stuff that's more complicated and challenging, and the stuff that really gets to your guts and that you wrestle with. At least that's what I like, right? And so that, I think that's, I think you're already hitting on the final few minutes of, of what tonight is going to be about, what, what Proverbs is in the biblical corpus. I agree. I, I also find these other books far more compelling to learn, teach, work with, and struggle with. Whereas here, it's like, okay, I agree. I'd much rather have a happy home, but regardless of menu, I happen to be fortunate. Happy home, and my wife is a sensational cook. But... That's a blessing, but but in other words, of the two, it's better better to have the better to have the the wonderful family life, that, and that's what Proverbs is trying to say, at Beverly. Well, I was going to put the same thing in more of a question form. How is Pirkei Avot different from this? Because it seems to me this that we just read could be in Pirkei Avot. There's certainly some overlap between it. In other words, it's Literally, the same concept. Uh, well, there is actually one case in Pirkei Avot where the sage, you know, who are Yaomer? He just quotes from Proverbs. Mm-hmm. When your enemies fall, don't be happy. That, that, those are biblical verses. Most of them make up their own statements. That, that this is what they were used to saying. And I think I think what, where Elias is going with it is that with Avot, there's more room to develop in depth. You can study Pirkei Avot from within the text, and there are things that, that challenge you. Not always. Sometimes they're very smooth sailing, feel good, just like this, where there's little wiggle room. But a lot of time, not. I think a lot of time there is more to talk about there. I would much sooner give a class in Perkei Avot than in Proverbs, because I think there's more to talk about over there. Here, it's, I agree. I hear Elias's point very loud and very clear. It's hard to develop these ideas, which again, my friends and colleagues and students who teach it, that's what they talk about when they teach it on a deeper level. What they mean is that they're ignoring this because they don't have anything to say about it either. But the rabbinic commentators who have written on it have very profound things to say, whether or not it's what the verses actually mean. So at least you can study something profound. I think they're missing the same thing that Elias is missing over there. And that's why they're looking for something else. But my view is if you want to look for something else, just find something else. Right? There's, there's no reason to pursue. and, to, and so that, That's the tricky part. Here's another example of this pairing thing. The name of, in source nine, the name of the Lord is a tower of strength to which the righteous man runs and is safe. The wealth of a rich man is his fortress. In his fancy is a protective wall. So here you have what protects you, right? So from a God-fearing monotheistic point of view, it's the fear of God. And from a universal Proverbs point of view, it's good to have money. Right? So, and, that, and that's all he's trying to say. But both of them are protective things. So you can see this juxtaposition again where Proverbs is taking wisdom that presumably is being bandied around in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, and everywhere else, but then giving it a very distinctively monotheistic flavor. Yeah. You know what this reminds me of that kind of juxtaposition is the Ahmi scene in Hanukkah, the particular portion in the Amidah. You know the contradiction of the the, the strong being overcome by the weak. Okay. You know it's a, it's kind of a similarity. Good. Good. Uh, definitely. It's certainly rooted in our wisdom. Good. Uh, one thing that the Dot Mikra commentary points out 
is that here's a key difference, and this is just a running theme in Tanakh between Egyptian and Mesopotamian wisdom literature on the one hand and our wisdom on the other hand. You already know the answer, even if you don't know the answer to this question, just because it's the running theme through all of Tanakh. Tanakh is absolutely democratic. Wisdom is for everybody. If you ask an Egyptian wisdom sage, who's wisdom for? It's for the wise. Whereas here, the whole point is that the father's teaching his little child. Right? The idea that the Torah is meant to be accessible to all and should be studied by all, each at our own level, but everybody should have access to it, is a basic premise of the Torah. And that never goes away. We, dem- we democratize everything. An interesting example of that vis-a-vis Egypt is that the Egyptian kings believed that they were created in the image of their gods. But nobody else is. Kings are created in God's image. Nobody else. They had the idea of an image of God long before the Torah. Whereas God kicks in in chapter 1 of Genesis saying all humanity is created in God's image. This is baloney that it's about the kings. It's not about the kings. God is the creator and all people are in that image. That's talk about democratizing the process. Tanakh from the very beginning is interested in that theme and that goes through wisdom also. Another important difference between that, that scholars point out between Mishle, Proverbs, and Egyptian wisdom is that as far as Proverbs is concerned, if you are wise, you always will make the religiously proper decision. If you are truly wise, meaning anytime you make a mistake, that's a lapse in your wisdom. Right? It's realistic. It understands that people can make mistakes. But the assumption is that if you are truly wise, you will always make righteous decisions. Egyptian wisdom doesn't think that way. It likes righteousness. It's pro-righteousness, however they define it. But they don't assume it's a necessary link. They say it would be good if you're, you know, it's it's good if you're righteous. But you can be wise and not necessarily righteous. In In biblical wisdom, righteousness comes with wisdom because you're always going to make the right decision. And that actually lies at the bedrock of the book of Proverbs. If you look at source 10... Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. As much as wisdom is important, that's not where the buck stops. The buck's always going to stop with trusting in God. And that is a very basic premise of what, of what the book of Proverbs is all about. That we should fear God, we should transmit our wisdom, we should see the whole world through the wisdom, and with that we will always make the right decisions and, and always avoid the dangerous decisions. Now, a very basic premise of Proverbs, which which is, you know, Elias and I are going to struggle together over this one, which is why we both would want sooner turn to Kohelet, is that the assumption of, of Proverbs is that the world is fair. And if you think the world is unfair, you just have to put on a better pair of glasses, called wisdom glasses. The world is fundamentally fair, and as long as you live a wise, righteous life, because they go together, you will live a better life. Just like that. It's really very simple. And therefore, the goal of the wise sage in our book is to teach everybody to make the right decisions because everybody then will live a better life. And that's his pitch, actually. He doesn't say, serve God. He says, serve God because it's good for you. You'll benefit. You will gain. You will have this wonderful, rich life because you will because you are serving God. So... That's a very basic premise of the book. If you look at source 11, for example, he who digs a pit will fall in it, and whoever rolls a stone, it will roll back on him. If you do bad, bad things to other people, you're going to pay, get payback. That's just a basic assumption, right? Or verse 12, uh, source 12, 
Righteousness protects him whose way is blameless. Wickedness subverts the sinner. Okay, that's easy. If you're righteous, then you'll you'll be safe. And if you're wicked, well, very bad things will happen. There are lots and lots and lots of verses like that. To be fair, Proverbs occasionally acknowledges that the world is unfair. It does. But it's, well, for example, source 13, he expresses frustration over it. Like a muddy spring, a ruined fountain is a righteous man fallen from before a wicked one. So he grants there is such a thing as a righteous man who falls before a wicked one. And he says that's crummy. But the ongoing solution in Proverbs, if you skip to 15 just for a second, do not envy a lawless man or choose any of his ways. For the devious man is an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the straightforward. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the abode of the righteous. He regularly goes into this theme that even if you see temporary unfairness, it's temporary. So don't envy the wicked because they're going down. That's a regular theme in Proverbs. For that matter, it's a regular theme in Psalms. We recite things like this all the time, including every Shabbat, right? When wicked people sprout like grass, meaning they're prospering, God is going to destroy them permanently. So a fool doesn't understand that the success of the wicked is only temporary. But wise people should understand this. Proverbs is predicated on that. So the assumption is the world is generally very fair. In the event of the occasional anomaly, don't worry, be patient, everything will be fine. Okay, so that's, that's, that's how it works, yeah. Okay, this is partly my own point of view in addressing this issue. For me, at least, I feel that the world is neither fair nor unfair, it's neutral. And in fact, embodied in that, um, you know, let's say 13, make it unfair, even for the righteous person. That doesn't mean the righteous person can always overcome it, but it's not the world who's being unfair to him or her, it's who's doing it to them. Okay. Uh, I don't know if I fully I don't know if I fully agree with that premise, but but okay, go for it. All I'm saying is that in Proverbs the world is very fair and everything always works out fine. Usually it works out fine from the get go, and occasionally when there are exceptions it'll work out in the end. So I don't, Michael V. Fox, not to be confused with Michael J. Fox. Michael J. Fox was a very funny man in his day. And uh, Michael V. Fox is a great Bible scholar who's interested particularly in these wisdom books. He's written about Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. He likes Megillat Esther also. Michael V. Fox says that the key difference between the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes is that if you ask the author of Proverbs, how do you know what you know? He would say, this is what my teachers taught me. This is our received tradition. If you ask the author of Kohelet, how do you know what you know? Which is why it's such a different book. He would say, this is my received tradition. He would give that answer. And I'm also paying attention to what I see with my own eyes. And Kohelet is a very frustrated book because there's a clash very often between what we are taught by received wisdom and what we see with our own eyes, particularly in the realm of fairness. Right? So Proverbs just says, if you see unfairness, okay, occasionally it's really true, but it'll end instantly, don't you worry. And most of the time it's fair anyway. Whereas Kohelet is saying, what are you talking about? You know, sometimes it's fair, but sometimes it's really not. 
And this drives me crazy, and I lose sleep over this. Okay, so that's why Kohelet needs to be written also. But the book of Proverbs is not the book of Kohelet. The book of Proverbs really takes the stand of what tradition actually does teach. And then Kohelet teaches us how to struggle when we see a world that doesn't quite match what wisdom taught us. And this brings us back to, to my original frustration when I was 21 years old, which at least I've sorted through, so I feel much better about it now. Then I was really baffled the way, the way I started. I was like, I don't understand why I'm not enjoying these courses. They're being taught well. It's a book that I love, and I'm, I'm just not happy. What's going on here? Okay, so it took me years to figure out why, why I was unhappy. So it was good, and I, and I was happy to figure it out. Uh, a few years ago, Rabbi Moshe Lichtenstein, the son of Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, and himself quite a Talmud Chacham who is now, has succeeded his father as one of the Rashi Yeshivat, Yeshivat Haaretzion. So Rav Moshe Lichtenstein spoke at a, at a group called the Orthodox Forum. It's a group of Orthodox intellectuals, primarily from America and Israel, who sit around every year and discuss a theme from various angles. So he was one of the presenters on the theme of Yerat Shamayim, God-fearingness, <coughs> being God-fearing. And he was talking about how should we teach Tanakh to children? Which is an excellent question, something that I think about now daily. But even before I was a parent, I thought about it all the time just as an educator. Now I think about it every moment that I'm trying to teach any story to my children. I'm making these zillions of executive decisions about how to present everything. It's amazing because the responsibility is limitless and the opportunity is limitless. It's incredible to see how this all plays out. So Rav Lichtenstein took the stance that it's worth teaching you know, the standard traditional mode of teaching Humash and Rashi with all the Midrashim to little children, because they're so vivid and so compelling and so gripping. And when they get older, you can kind of disabuse some of those Midrashim and move into a more analytical approach and get closer to what the text itself is saying. And of course, that comes with a big plus. These Midrashim really are fabulous. And it comes with a big minus, which is that when you get to ballpark ninth grade, and you finally can read a chumash when the teacher's teaching it to you, you look down at the text and you say, wow, everything they taught me in second grade is a lie. Right? At least that's what I did, and I, th- I think a lot of people do that. Right? Like, well, all of a sudden, every single thing that you were ever taught, none of it's in the text. It's unbelievable. Once I was teaching a very sophisticated, learned group of adults. You're sitting around a table. I like learning at home with people. I like learning in shuls. I like, I, I, Give me people who like to learn. I, w- I like to be with them. That's really what it all comes down to. So this was around somebody's dining room table one evening. And we were talking about this and that. And I don't, we weren't even talking about Kriyat Yamsuf, but that somehow chimed in there. I don't remember the context because it was like 15 years ago. But in came the Midrash about how Nachshon ben Amin Adav, the head of the tribe of, of Yehuda, went into the water. And that triggered Kriyat Yamsuf. It's a fabulous Midrash. And I somehow mentioned that. And... Everybody, everybody around the table vigorously objected to me and said, this isn't a midrash, it's in the chumash. So I passed it. So we all had Tanakhs in front of us. I said, well, here's the chapter. Go, go fish and, and see what you can go come fish. up with. Huh? Go fish. Yeah, I, 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 never make, I, I never make puns. If you want to read one in, go ahead. But in the meantime, zero times. But in the meantime, they all searched and searched and searched and then we're convinced I must have been giving them the wrong chapter to look at. Because <laughs> it's got to be here. I'm like, no, it really, really, really is nowhere in the Tanakh. This is not a story that you will find in the Torah at all because it's not there. And so, and they, again, these were very sophisticated, learned adults so, you know, and who had plenty, plenty, plenty of background and who had been in synagogue over all of those years reading the Torah along Parsha Shabuah. And 
They were all utterly convinced from their childhood education that this is in this text. And it's not. And that's one of thousands of cases where kids have to, at some point, grow past their original childhood their childhood education and become more sophisticated about it or else just be frozen in the second grade world, which is a, which is a problem in its own right. So Rav Moshe Lichtenstein said it's, still, it's worth it. It's worth having the hazard of being cluttered with Midrashim when you're older because the Midrashim are just so powerful. It's worth it religiously. That was his argument. And in a footnote in the book that was published subsequently, I heard the original talk, but then you know, they write these things up and then there are lots of footnotes. I read those also. Yet another reason why I have utterly terrible eyesight, but it's worth it because sometimes the footnotes are the best part. So in footnote, actually, no, sorry, endnote 11 in, in, in the article, he tries to give a, an analogy to why you should teach simpler things to children and more sophisticated things to either older children or adults, which we can all, that part we all know. He says Proverbs is a book for children. And the book of Job is a book for adults. Yeah. Proverbs is, is the right way to go with kids. It's simple. You keep things nice and simple. Job is tormented. You, the world is more complicated than what you learned about in second grade. But when you're an adult, you can wrestle with that stuff. So my eyes really bugged out. It's hard to surprise me when I read scholarship. It really is. I've, I've seen a lot of wacky stuff. But here's a Rosh Hashiva saying that there's a book in the Bible that's for children. I'm like, wait a second. That's how I feel too, but I would never put that in print because I'm sure there's more to it and I feel bad that I'm missing that more to it. So I emailed my teacher, Rabbi Shalom Karmi, right away. Back in December of 2008, you know, minutes after I read this endnote. I'm like, whoa, what do you think of this? It's like, what do you make of it? On the one hand, it sounds very reasonable. On the other hand, again, we're talking about a biblical book and the idea that it's frozen for children is very surprising. Again, the commentators who quote-unquote learn it on a deeper level obviously think that there's a lot more going on in the book. They're not satisfied by saying, oh yeah, this is wisdom for younger people, and when you get older, read my commentary on Job, then you'll really, or or Kohelet, then you'll really struggle. So Rabbi Karmi responded, I have the quotation right here in my notes. Pshad is hospitable. Mishle, after all, addresses my son, etc. And this Zitzim Leben, Maybe the school. In other words, this really might be that the setting for the book, or at least the you know literary setting for the book, is that you imagine a teacher teaching children in a school. My guts are, of course, against it for from reasons. How can you say that Devar Hashem is for children? In other words, he had the same problem you know, for the same reason. But in this case, truth may trump from kite. That was the end of the. That was the end of that email. I loved it. Typical Rabbi Carmi, classic. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, you know, he's a lifelong teacher and by now friend and colleague also, but, he, but he, he's, he's really influenced me in a lot of different a lot of different good ways. My daughter Aviva Chaya, by the way, the Chaya is named after Rabbi Carmi's mother. So actually, if I, and I feel that closeness with him. I wanted I wanted his mother's name to live on in in, in one of my children. So in the meantime. Basically, the argument was that Rav Lichtenstein may be right, that, that the book of Proverbs was written specifically for a younger age or for a simpler level of faith, and it works. And that's why I loved it when I was 18, 19 years old. It was just fantastic. It really just spoke to me. It kept things so clean and simple. It was so pure and good. But then at some point, by the time you're 21, let alone what we are now, where it stops winning the game because we all understand that life is way more complicated than that. And that's why you suddenly need the book of Job and the book of Kohelet to say, wait a second, it doesn't always work this way. 
We have to challenge this. We have to protest this. We have to struggle with it. That's what's going to be coming up when we do the book of Job and later on when we do the book of Kohelet, all during this segment, of course. But I just want to propose a different approach for Proverbs and with this we'll wrap it up. It could also be that Tanakh itself wants adults to always waver between the two poles rather than just saying once for kids and once for adults. The bottom line is that having faith is a complicated business. But it's good when part of us has that pure faith that's absolutely holding on, and part of us struggles. It's not good if you're struggling all the time. It's not good if you're pure all the time, or at least I couldn't even imagine an adult being blind to to reality. There's merit to the faith system that contains both. That actually has part of us that really purely holds on to everything, and part of us realizes that life is more complicated than that and is willing to and is able to struggle, challenge, question, but to have both of them simultaneously. It might be that Mishlei, the book of Proverbs, is not written only for children. It's written for a part of us that really should never disappear, a part of us that really holds on to the received tradition. Megan? Um, I, I thought uh, one way to look at it is, based on some of these statements, is uh, if you as an individual have a purpose but you get caught up in the jealousy and anger at the wicked winning, and you not, then you won't fulfill that purpose. You'll be distracted from it by these ugly things. And then you will lose that that purpose. So you won't be able to move ahead in the sharp way that is the way that you're supposed to go. Well put. Well put. I'm going to give an analogy the way the Talmud, just to play up on your, on your point. The, the sages of the Talmud, they didn't imagine a chair the way that we picture a chair. They pictured a stool that has three legs. And the logic is that when it has three legs, of course it's stable. When it has fewer than three legs, you don't, really don't want to sit on that guy, right? More than four. More than three. That's not stable. It depends, how you it depends how you arrange them. But anyway, the, the, I don't want to talk about chairs. I want to talk about this three, this three analogy because Chazal specifically wanted it to be this idea that there's stability, but if you take away any one of those legs, then the thing topples over. You cannot retain it. Mishlei is a three-legged stool. The book of Proverbs is a three-legged stool. To it, wisdom is absolutely rock solid. It's got the foundations in the earth. You sit on this stool, you will never fall over. Right? Whereas Job and Kohelet are going to come along and say the world is closer to the two-legged stool, where it's our job... To keep it to keep it steady, because the, the legs itself won't. The legs themselves won't. So I think that plays very well with what you were saying, yeah, Sherry. Yeah, well, I think that was actually goes back to some of my professional training as well. I think of, if you will, on Mishlei, uh, is call it the basis. It's like the the first bricks and the skeleton of a building, and then and you still have to have that in order, you know, that basis in order for the building to ultimately stand as a whole. So it's always going to be there, just like with us when we first learned. But the bricks that come after it and build the building are what we gain additionally after the progress of the years. Very good. Uh, so I think that's very close to what's going on over here. Okay, good. So that's, I think, where my struggles with Mishlei have been, even though I, you know, I continue to love the book. But simultaneously, it's always going to be... It's always going to be a piece of a faith picture rather than what creates faith. Rav Soloveitchik has a wonderful drasha with this. You know, Pesach is nowhere near us yet, although it's going to feel very near very soon, at least for some of us. But in the meantime, but in the meantime, Rav Soloveitchik has a nice way, a, ser- a sermonic discussion of what chametz ref- reflects and what matzah reflects. He says that chametz reflects the sophisticated adult, like that's the the rising, the rising. 
But when you're an adult, you're, you're like the chametz. Matzah is the childlike simplicity. You know, it's, nothing has risen over there, just plain simple, no leaven whatsoever. He says, you can, and a, a pure adult can never have good faith. A pure adult, if you're always thinking like an adult. If you love your parents, not the way that you did as a kid and then building on it, but rather you sever the childlike relationship and you just have an adult one, it's lost. Same thing with faith. To, to love God the way you love God as a child, that part should never go away. It should simply grow and develop. Obviously, it should become more sophisticated with time. So he says that on Pesach, we go back to that childlike roots to remind us that our faith starts with this basic core simplicity of the matzah. And then, of course, the rest of our life is about developing in, into a sophisticated adulthood. And it should always grow, but it always has to come from the child basis. So I think Mishle is basically that. That is the rock-solid foundation of faith in Tanakh, which is necessary in religious life, but simultaneously it shouldn't be the end of what religious life is all about. So I think at the end of the day, it presents something very, very valuable, not only to children, but I think it reminds us as adults how important it is to have this layer of faith, even as our layers of faith continue to, to grow throughout a lifetime. Yeah, Beverly? So is it obvious that Shlomo, do we know if Shlomo wrote this first? And wrote the other ones later, very few things in life are around. obvious. Uh, very few, even the midrash. I mean, look, I don't, I don't take, I don't take those midrashim as historical basis thing. It's an insight based thing in terms of what age you might write right. what so books. Do we know which order he wrote them? We don't know anything. Uh, we, we don't know anything. There's, there's no reason to assume that he wrote Song of Songs when he was young, and this one when he was middle aged and Kohelet when he was old and bitter. I don't think Kohelet is old and bitter. I think I, uh, you can write this as a young person. You can't write it when you're 16, unless you're having a really dark year in junior year of high school. But but any adult could write a book like Kohelet at some point, because you just encounter conflicts between what you were taught and and what you see. That's what the book is all about. You don't need to be old and bitter about that. You just any any thoughtful person will be able to pull that one off. So I, I don't see any reason to think about. Every now and then I do, I do consulting. I go to various high schools and just talk to them about developing their Tanakh curriculum. Every now and then this question comes up about Kohelet. Like, should we teach it in conjunction with King Solomon's life? And I say, please don't. It's not about him. This is universal wisdom that was composed by him and inspired by him. But it's not about his life and the mistakes he made. It's about this is the universal human experience. And the more you link it to a particular historical character, in this case, King Solomon, the less you can appreciate the eternal message that's just as relevant to us as it was to him. So, And I think the same of Proverbs and Song of Songs. To me, it, it has nothing to do with his biography. It has to do with this is, this is traditional wisdom. This is what Jewish tradition has taught, and it mixes in really universal human wisdom with you know what the Mesopotamian and Egyptian sages and others were saying at that time. It has nothing at all to do with a particular person. King Solomon just was an excellent transmitter and developer of this wisdom. But it's not a personal it's not a personal saga of, of this of, of this man. On that happy note, let's call it a night. I w- it's so good to be back. And next week next week we'll get to do the other side of this coin, namely the book of Job.